0: The following episode is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. This is part two of the Somebody to Love, the life, death, and legacy of Freddie Mercury episode. So if you haven't heard the first part, go back and heard that one. <laughs> you know what I mean. Without further ado, part two. Countdown for off. X minus five, four, three... Two, X, X minus, minus one. one, fire. Welcome to Elton Reed's Book of Week, the only podcast on the internet that can cut a man's life into two pieces. Well, synopsis of his life, at least. My name is Elton, and I read a book a week. This time, it's a continuation, folks, so if you haven't heard the first part, you should probably have done that by now. You know, first. Otherwise, this is all going to get real confusing real fast. Or not. I don't know. It's entirely up to you. Uh, Make sure you follow the podcast on Twitter, which is where I usually lurk the most often, or on Facebook, if that's your thing, too, where you can uh, join a group and bitch about how I don't make enough of these often enough. I get that a lot. You can also email me at eltonreadsbookaweek at gmail.com um, to tell me the same thing, but with a personal touch. If you enjoy this episode, please consider contributing to it via patreon.com or the podcast anchor.fm page. You can do that through there too. Or, you know, there's tip jars on other podcast apps. You might try one of those too. That'd be great. I'll put the links in the description for the uh Patreon.com and the Anchor.fm thing. But, you know, try the other ones too. Whatever. Okay. So on with part two of the, you know, the show thing or whatever this is. Podcast. podcast. There it is. Episode. Hmm. When we left off, Freddie and the gang had just recorded a demo and turned down a fuckload of money because nobody puts Queen in the corner. Said the terrible Dirty Dancing reference. Meanwhile. The demo version of Keep Yourself Alive had made it into the hands of Trident Studios. Determined to get Queen on their roster, they offered a loose arrangement for the band, you know, while the band entertained their official offer. I imagine it was kind of like a car dealership letting you take the car home for the night or weekend or whatever to entice you to overpay for it and overpay for the stuff you don't need, like seatbelts. Although it was quote-unquote loose, they made demands which Trident agreed to. Even buying the band new instruments, a new fucking PA system, and even found them a manager named Jack Nelson. Plus, they could use the studios to record their debut record, but only during off hours, which which was usually between 11 or 2 a.m. We'll give you the downtime in the studio to see what you can do, they said, despite the bribe of free-ish... Studio time, Queen wasn't just gonna roll over and take a dick. <clears throat> take a shitty record deal from those studio time, wild and smooth talking motherfuckers. No, sir. They knew what they wanted in a rock and roll, rock and roll fucking deal. For the time being, they didn't sign the contract and wouldn't for another seven months. How about that shit? I think that's the only time that I know of that the cow got something for free and didn't have to give up an ounce of milk or sex, Freddie and the band were confident in saying, either take us on as a serious commodity or don't take us at all. They eventually exhausted almost every record company and had turned down the one major offer they got that shit ton of money. This is a great quote from Freddie about record deals and how artists should approach them. I feel that it's timeless, wise and prescient in general regarding that shit. Talent. He said, isn't just about being a good musician these days. It's about being aware. It's vital to do the whole thing properly. Talent is not just writing good songs and performing them. It's having a business brain, because that's a major part of it, to get the music across properly and profit from it. Use all the tricks of the trade, and if you believe in yourself, you'll go all the way. Never has that meant more than right now. With the deluge of talented artists flooding the internet with their fucking music, it takes some business acumen to not get completely screwed over if someone, you know, wants to profit from it and they come a knocking. I mean, someone wanting to profit from it other than the artist, of course. So while Trident was working to get the recording and distribution deals going, Queen signed with them and spent 1972 recording their album, which would be titled Queen all the tracks were written by either Freddie or Brian. While Brian's songs were structured in a more standard kind of way, Freddie's were naturally eccentric. Brian May remembered that Freddie wrote in strange keys. Like, for okay, for instance, most guitar-based music is played in either, you know, a key of A or E with a little D or G sometimes, but not, by, not much beyond that. Most of our stuff, Brian said, particularly Freddie's songs, We're in oddball keys. That is his fingers naturally seem to go to E-flat, F, A-flat. They're the last things you want to be playing on guitar. So as a guitarist, you're forced to find new chords. Freddie's songs were so rich in chord structures. Along with writing in wonky keys and such, Freddie took it upon himself to design the band's logo. He created a crest based on the four member Zodiac signs atop the Q in the logo a Phoenix to represent Phoenix, Arizona, a place that Freddie always felt was his spiritual home. Despite my never having set foot in Phoenix at the time, Freddie recounted for the Radio Times, I had always felt a special connection to the place. It's the bleak, seemingly uninhabitable, disgusting, inhospitable, flat brown, beige blandness bespeckled with mountains that are also brown and sometimes beige. I felt that Phoenix, and in turn, its place as the nondescript and dead, uncultured capital of Arizona, which is, I believe, just a toxic waste dump, right? That perfectly embodied the state of my spirituality at the time. A rebirth of sorts into an empty void that held nothing of value personally, culturally, or otherwise. Yet it was also a Interestingly enough, the color of my own shit after eating a lot of caramels. Would you like some caramels? Of course he didn't say that. He just included a phoenix because it fucking looked cool, I guess. Awesome. Anyway, that's what I imagine. I mean, you know, flaming birds rising from death and destruction are kind of badass. The people of Phoenix in Arizona, I apologize. Now, 1973, Queen agrees to an unpaid recording session with the BBC for their Radio 1 program, Sounds of the 70s. And it's so well-received, the record company EMI gets off their asses and signs them, netting them the distribution-sized recording deals that they were after. Then their manager, Jack Nelson, nails down a deal with Electro Records in the U.S. And now they're covered in the U.K., Europe, and the U.S. Shit is blowing up-ish. Kind of. Let's jump to July 16th, 1973. Queen's first official single, Keep Yourself Alive, written by Brian May, gets released. And of course, fucking nothing. 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 Critics pan it. They wouldn't play it on the radio. What the fuck, history? You know you're wrong here. Lighten up on the Queen already. Then, as if the gods personally intervene on their behalf, they shines on them by letting an unmarked, white-labeled copy of Keep Yourself Alive, land on the desk of the influential TV producer, Mike Appleton. He listens to it, has no idea who the fuck it is, but he likes it. He decides to feature it on his show, The Old Grey Whistle Test, and has he get somebody to cut together some weird-ass trippy stock footage mixed with a cartoon from FDR's presidential campaign from the 1930s, Because, you know, of course you would fucking do that. What kind of ridiculous shit is that? You can see it on YouTube. I'll pin it to the Elton Reads a Book a Week Facebook page. Which you should be following. The video is... um, Well, I'll just say people in the 70s were easily amused by random disjointed film. It looks like uh, someone got stoned out of their fucking gourd then, then threw dull kitchen knives at film strips and then taped together whatever fell on the floor. Still, it did the trick slightly. They got favorable calls and publicity and... Damn it, Britton, why isn't Freddy a fucking super rock star level yet? Why isn't he at that level? Ah, it's so disappointing. Ah. It only got them slightly more well-known. But by the end of 1973, Trident had invested 62,000 pounds in Queen, which is almost three-quarters of a million pounds in 2016. Or converted to dollars. A figure that I didn't take the time to convert to, but I'm pretty sure it's a lot of money. Um, you know. But they weren't getting anything for their money. Queen is, at this point, is a fucking money pit. Not even the good Tom Hanks, Shelley Long movie kind. No, Queen is just shit. Freddie and the Gang, shit. So, back into the studio, and they uh, they went and recorded their second album, Freddie's Songs, uh, a bunch of weird shit about fantasy again. Fucking ogre battle, really, Freddie? Come on. I mean, I'm I'm not a fan of fantasy. I mean, I'll get there, maybe, maybe. I don't know. I have a uh, I have five of the Game of Thrones books to read. I don't know if they're – they're probably the first five. They're in a set, you know. So who knows? But, I mean, Freddie wrote The Fairy Feller's Masterstroke? The Fairy Feller's Masterstroke. It sounds like a Burt Reynolds playing an elf in a gay porn knockoff of Lord of the Rings. It's – I don't know what the fuck that – I don't know. Oh, oh, and March of the Black Queen. I mean, even more fantasy shit. Don't – I mean, these all could have doubled for, th- I mean, this one, especially. I mean, this could probably have doubled for a black exploitation porno. Or, or whatever they called porno with an all-black cast. You know, whatever that was called back when racism was mainstream. Ebony something, maybe? I mean, other than probably just porno. So you know there was some god-awful name that was bandied about in porn theaters regarding black folks in movies. Or some nifty racist, uh... 70s porno jargon that I'm dropping the ball on here, but you get the idea. And you know, this actually got me wondering about some of the exchanges made in the lobbies of porn theaters back in the day. Like, huh, oh, hey, look who it is. Look who it is. If it isn't Herbie, the fastest hand in the West. Hey. Hey, Arthur. How's the, uh, the five-knuckle grind been treating you? And, uh, can't complain, can't complain. You know, uh, you uh, you here for the black exploitation offering? Oh boy, am I! I was so excited. I was jerking off in the alley, just thinking about jerking off in here. I, n- I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I do love me some black on black action. I I couldn't have said it better myself, my friend. Those uh, ebony ladies for Layton gets Herbie masturbating. Jesus, Harvey, watch your mouth. This is a porno theater. It's not some back alley circle jerk. Jeez, Arthur, you're right. You're right. I don't don't know what I was thinking. It won't happen again. Speaking of circle jerk, same time on Tuesday? Of course. I'll bring the beers. Okay. Okay. Back to Queen. So they need to start making that sweet green to pay Trident back, or they're gonna drop Freddie and the boys like a rent boy getting tea bagged. For those who don't know, uh, know what that means? It's it's pretty gross. Just just understand that things are being dropped uh, uh, into uh, into people's m- mouths, um, like these these people being the people being male. Prostitutes, balls, balls in the mouths of rent, like dropping, like dropping testicles into the mouths of male prostitutes. There, there. Now you don't have to wonder. God damn it. What Queen needed was another shot of luck. And of course, they get it in the form of David Bowie. Yeah. He was scheduled to appear on BBC TV's top of the pops in february of 1974 to perform rebel rebel but he pulled out at the last moment leaving a sexy opening that needed to be filled who could they have used to fill that hole with satisfaction while you know also getting some highly prized uh, exposure queen of course they were called upon to come into the back door of a show schedule in need And I hope you appreciate how much work I put into all the double entendre sexual innuendo talk. That was not easy. It took a lot of deliberation. You're welcome. The show uh, was regularly viewed by roughly 15 million people. So it got them some much needed publicity and pushed their single, Seven Seas of Rye, into the UK top 10. So with that, they had finally made it. (laughs) Whew. However, they still weren't making any fucking money from it. As far as, you know, Freddy was concerned, though, he'd uh, he'd hit the fucking big time. So, um, where's all his rock and roll shit? Where are his motherfucking groupies? Men on the left. Women on the right. Farm animals in the center. Fish, slightly. Center, slightly to the left. but But not near the carnivores. Plant life, center. But slightly to the right, because the animals... And people will eat them. There's a logic to it. Logic is sexy. Now, it's loop time. Where am I going with this? I don't know. But I need to stop. I'm kidding. There there were no farm animals or plants harmed in the uh, making of Freddy's sweet, sweet leaven. Well, not... Not that I know of, anyway. I should mention that during Freddy's rise to rock and roll icon status, he did have a girlfriend. Yes. That is correct. The rock star known for contracting AIDS and being gayer than the gayest gay, gay, gay and such had a girlfriend, a girlfriend he lived with, went to parties and events with everybody was fairly confident. He was poking the book tries very hard to make her a beard, which is a real slang term I'm using to describe, uh, that the book says she provided cover for Freddie's homosexuality. I would like to venture a guess and say that Freddie was around this time, bisexual as fuck like 50 50 by maybe 60 40 in favor of guys according to members of the crew that traveled with the band and set up gigs and stuff freddie um freddie fucked a little bit of everybody meaning men and women seriously it alludes to him having absolutely no specific type of men or women his dick went into anything warm more or less Regardless, his relationship with Mary Austin, the aforementioned girlfriend, who uh, upon his untimely demise, he left 50% of his estate to. And after learning, he would leave his mansion to her. He he said, uh, if things had been different, um, you would have been my wife, and this would have been yours anyway. In addition to Mary, uh, he also got with other women. Although late in his game, you know, there was a, a lady who was an Austrian actress named Barbara Valentin, that Be- Valentine, Be- I'm going to go with Velatin, Valentin. Be- that sounds Austrian. A woman uh, he engaged in quite a few threesomes with while also boning her solo on many, many an occasion uh, during their time together. They were inseparable in a best friends that play with each other's genitals kind of way for me. Personally, I think Freddie was a bisexual guy who leaned more towards men than women. I mean, come on. There isn't a definitive all or nothing kind of thing going on here. If anything, when it comes to human beings and their individual sexuality and desires that will satisfy it, there's a whole spectrum and all that. Plus, there's nothing to say that people can't shift back and forth from time to time over the course of their lives. I mean, hell, people even drift from one kind of porn to another over the course of a day. So... Despite the book clearly wanting Freddy to be all gay, all day, and merely fronting as straight, I think maybe Freddy liked a little gal tale once in a while and favored men more as time went on. At the end of the day, does it fucking matter? It was Freddy's dick. I mean, he could do whatever he wanted with it. And he chose to do a lot of people with it. I mean, come on. Are you jealous much, book? I mean, fucking. So, Queen finished the album titled Queen 2. And then they went on tour and as a supporting act on a portion of um, Moth Hoople's tour. The album gained them a little more fame, but still not motherfucking legendary rock star world conquering badass fame yet, and the money was still not happening. Damn it, Jimmy! What the fuck are you holding them back for? Sorry. I was talking about Jimi Hendrix. I don't know where that came from. He had nothing to do with anything. I just felt that someone should be blamed for them not being uh, not so famous. So why not Jimi Hendrix? That insanely God-level talented motherfucker. I think he can take it. God! So, Queen's tour, record tour, record lifestyle uh, w- would go on for years and years and years. They would eventually get tired of it. But, anyway. Fucking damn it, Jimmy. So now... We jump to 1974, and they're back in the recording studio again. This time for what would become the album Sheer Heart Attack. Freddie wrote six songs for this one, one of which was the album's biggest hit. Guess what it was? Nope, not that one. Maybe it was that one. I don't know what you guessed. Killer Queen is a song about a high-class hooker and dynamite with a laser beam. Guaranteed to blow your mind anytime. That's the last time. I will do that. I swear to God. It's a Freddie song. It's a song. It's a Freddie song. Yes, it is. It's a song Freddie wrote in one night. Killer Queen. According to him, it just fell into place in the dark one Saturday night and then the next morning. Then he worked on it all Saturday. Uh, sorry all Sunday. He worked on it all Sunday and it gelled. He said it was great. The book tries to pin down who the killer queen in the lyrics, who that really was, but I didn't buy it. It seems like the lyrics are an amalgamation kind of thing. You know, the song uh, snippets of things Freddie remembered shit. He made up multiple people. He might've known just like little things about them, little idiosyncrasies and things. and, And some mixtures of anecdotal stuff, all that mixed together. That may or may not have involved real people. I mean, you know, just a mix. A few individuals lay claim to the moniker that they are the killer queen or what the fuck ever, saying that it's about them. But usually when that happens, it means it wasn't specifically about any one of them. So, I mean, what can you do, right? Everybody wants to be the subject of a famous song. There's nothing wrong with that. But guess what? Sometimes it's just made up shit. That sounds like somebody, but isn't any one person. Sucks a dick. Uh, I don't know why I did that, but still, you get what I'm saying. Killer Queen was a turning point for the band. Brian May recalls, It was the song that best summed up our kind of music, and a big hit, and we desperately needed it as a mark of something successful happening for us. And boy did it. It was the pivot of Freddie pseudo-rock star, to Freddie, I fuck who I want, Rockstar. There is a difference. But hold on. Freddy would have to hold off on fully making that pivot. First, they had to resolve the problem with Trident. From Freddy's point of view, they weren't giving them their fucking Rockstar money. Freddy, in his determined drive to become a rock superstar, had relinquished the burdensome hindrance of what is commonly referred to as patience. I imagine he felt, as many a newly signed artist does, that he had finally made it when the band had signed their record deal. He probably thought to himself, great, now that that shit's out of the way, where is my fucking mansion, where are my cars, where's my pool, where's my shit? It's a common misunderstanding among many new artists, musicians, artists, artists. Getting all that shit is not nearly as easy as they think, no. See, a record contract is in reality more like uh, a loan. An artist slash band slash whatever is signed, uh, paid and agreed to advance, and a fixed amount of money to record their album. The advance money is there to sustain an artist slash band slash whatever through the recording process, you know, and however long that takes, you know. And it's to cover the rent and managers and shoes and uh, rubbers that Freddie probably should have used. Anyway... Things like that, everyday expenses, ramen, hot dogs, shit like that. Then there are the costs of recording the actual record. That's in the recording contract too. That's a loan. The artist has to pay that back via sales, you know, of the album and the record company fucking eats first. You know, they're laying down their money via the contract. It, their money comes out of that shit first, out of all the profits. The artist eats out of uh, out of the trough second. Usually they they don't get a lot. It's a cruel process, but uh, way back in the seventies up until uh, well today, that's how they fucking do it. It's terrible. Anyway, Freddie's thought process was like you. The regular folks anybody else would got my contract made a record. The record is selling where is my rock star shit? An anecdote uh, illustrating this misunderstanding he has is conveyed in the book while, F- while Freddie uh, confronts one of the studio heads norman sheffield Norman Sheffield recalled Freddie demanded a grand piano when I turned him down, he banged his fist on my desk. I have to have a grand piano. Now I wasn't being mean. We knew there was a huge amount of money coming due, you know, to come flooding our way from Queen's success. I explained it was already coming in, but the vast majority of it, the the vast majority of it hadn't arrived yet. But we're stars, selling millions of records. Freddie said, and I'm still living in the same flat I've been in for the past three years. the The amount of money we'd, we. Being Trident is uh, who he's talking about. The the amount of money we'd invested in the band was huge. We'd advanced them equipment and salaries right at the beginning and had continued to pour money into them for four years. The fact the band owed Trident close to 200,000 pounds, the equivalent of over 2.1 million pounds in 2016, um, that didn't seem to register with Freddie. I can remember the conversation, he said the money will come in december so wait then came a phrase he would make famous around the world in years to come no one would have known but freddie stamped his feet raised his voice said no i am not prepared to wait any longer i want it all Regardless, this would eventually grow into a rift big enough to drive a lawsuit through, as the disparity between them having three reasonably successful albums, two top ten singles, and such, uh, they weren't seeing much money. Queen would lawyer up and get the fuck out of their contract with Trident, uh, and they did, eventually. See what happens when Freddie doesn't get his shit, Jimmy? Do you see? Watch your ass, Jimmy. Watch your ass. In an unspoken way, they had a lot riding on their next album. Uh, Because at this point, even though Sheer Heart Attack had been a good album, and Killer Queen was a breakthrough single, (sighs) Queen was effectively broke, or close to it. I mean, entering the mid-70s, running on fumes, uh, they needed a big hit. So, their next album, of course, uh, was an all-or-nothing endeavor. And if it went nowhere, Queen was probably done too. Um, titled "A Night at the Opera," many people who aren't Queen fans might know this album as "The Iceberg That Sank Queen's Titanic" or "Ship or 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 Sank Its Battleship." It's, it sank their ship. It turned out to be the worst album in the history of albums. All the albums. A Rolling Stone review from the time said it was an album fit to be the soundtrack to a porno specifically designed to make men lose erections. Ouch. That's nonsense that I made up, but I'm going to move on. The album would be called A Night at the Opera. That's true. Which was named after a uh, Marx Brothers movie of the same name. Recorded over three months in six studios and cost £35,000 to make. It's a lot of money. Was it enough to uh, pull the Queen Career airliner out of its slow dead engine glide into obscurity? I mean that depends on if you're familiar with the uh, Bohemian Rhapsody or not. The wind blows, doesn't really to me. To me. Bohemian Rhapsody will prove to be one of Freddie's greatest works, a six-minute epic in three distinct movements. That, at the time of its release, was the most expensive. Single ever recorded. It contains no chorus and it's about murder, nihilism, and according to the book's tortured stretch of a confusing interpretation, it's Freddie Mercury's coming out anthem as well. I don't know. Anyway, regardless, Bohemian Rhapsody was a big risk and it worked. Freddie had begun composing Bohemian Rhapsody in his flat in Kensington long before the recording sessions took place. Roy Thomas Baker, The producer on all of Queen's albums at the time, he would go on to produce The Night at the Opera, too. He remembered he was given a snippet of what would become Bohemian Rhapsody. Freddie sat down at his piano and said, I'd like to play you a song I'm working working on at the moment. So uh, he played the first part and said, This is followed by the interim part. Although he didn't have the lyrics all together yet. It was going to be a ballady number. He played a bit further through the song and then stops suddenly saying, this is where the opera section comes in. We both just burst out laughing. Bohemian Rhapsody took three weeks to record, which is as long as most bands took to record an entire album in the mid-70s. Most of the time was spent on the middle operatic section. It took a number of 10 to 12 hour days for the band to lay down the nearly 200 vocal overdubs in order to flesh out the entire choir effect what the fuck? Two hundred vocal overdubs? That's resinging the same parts over and over and over. I'm surprised there wasn't a fucking homicide. The, oh my god! The recording process had been such a technically complex affair um, that, but they weren't entirely sure what to expect when they heard the whole thing at the end of it. There was no preview thing. There was an instant playback. That all of this had to be cut together and, and taped together. just, just it was monstrous work. So there's no way to hear what it was going to sound like until it was done. Can you fucking imagine that putting in those many days? What if it had been a turd? Fucking there would have been some knife play and, uh, just saying it was all Freddy's idea. Freddy probably would have been stabbed the most. Gary Langdon remembered that he. Just knew it was destined for such greatness and had this whole charisma about it, he said. So, they put it all together. The band thought they should release it as the first single from A Night at the Opera. Well, Bohemian Rhapsody was a six-minute song, and radio stations at the time weren't playing these things. Not not six minutes. It was twice as long as the classic three-minute runtime that radio stations usually stuck to. Contrary to popular portrayal, the band and the record company thought about cutting it down to fit radio's format. But listen to Bohemian Rhapsody. Go ahead, go listen to it. I'm not gonna play the fucking thing here. I'll get sued. But go listen to it. They had the same. They had a problem. You just listen to the whole song. You you can probably hear it in your head. They listened to it over and over and couldn't figure out a way to cut it, to trim it down. So, they just kicked it out. And said, you know what? Six minute song, man. Uh, and they, they kind of crossed their fingers and hope for the best. Freddie said it was either going to be a big ass flop or people were going to listen to it, buy it, and it would be a big hit. Which, I mean, that's how most things go, right? It's either a big fucking deal or no deal. Now wait. Now wait. I know what you're thinking. What's been going on with AIDS haven't talked about it yet. How's that old so-and-so AIDS been doing? Been wondering about that AIDS. Is it having a good time with all the making people ill and dying? Killing off the gay community via the pleasures of the Hershey Highway and discos as far as the eye can see? What the fuck am I talking about? I just trampled off into the weeds and kept going. Pull it back in. AIDS. As far as sexually transmitted diseases go... It's doing very well at this time. Unfortunately, it had been hiding under the radar of the medical community for years and was secretly killing its way across the globe for decades, simply by way of its long game attack on the immune systems of people. Had uh, human beings been dropping like flies overnight, it probably uh, would have been caught and dealt with much sooner. Um, Also, unfortunately, as history has shown us, it wasn't the case ...that it was caught and dealt with, was it? It was simply the wrong time and place for the LGBTQ community... ...and the right time and social place... ...for AIDS to hook up and get its years-long killing on. God damn it. Fuck AIDS. I mean, not literally. Fucking a disease isn't a good idea no matter what sexy pillow talk it lays on you. Oh, come on, baby. Let's have some fun, huh? Live a little. And by that, I mean very little... You're dead in a few years, but it's a gentle slide into a pain-filled end. You'll lose weight, though, eh? Yeah. Doesn't everybody want to lose some weight? And maybe hair? I don't know, teeth? I mean, you know, hey, where you going? After millennia of stifling oppression, being forced into hiding, and far, far worse, the gay community saw a dim glimmer of hopeful acceptance beginning to glow in the 1970s. There were the Stonewall riots and an equality movement sparking to life, and then slowly gaining momentum. At the time, an underground network of clubs allowing gay folks to be openly gay, in the open, well, in the confines of the clubs, anyway. It was was starting to happen. The LGBTQ folks could be themselves in these places. So they were, you know, it was freeing. And, uh, you know, much like an abused dog let off the leash, It seemed the whole community ran away with it, basking in the newfound freedom and somewhat covert acceptance. So, of course, that means they fucked a lot. Wouldn't you? I mean, after being told you were wrong for being you, wrong for being attracted to who you were attracted to, and suddenly get a quiet whisper of, okay, go ahead, you're good to go. Boom, it's fuck time. This newfound Semi freedom happened right as the virus that is spread via sexual contact was surreptitiously making its way through humanity. Meeting up with a community with newfound semi freedom to bump uglies was horrific and deadly kismet that led to AIDS spreading like wildfire through that community. Then it was ignored by the rest of society at large and allowed to spread due to ignorance fueled by dogma and fear. What the fuck? The history of gay acceptance is a topsy-turvy one, uh, you know, to say the least. While sometimes, and peoples like, you know, say the Romans and others were pretty okay with same-sex fucking, others still would much rather they be strung up and murdered. The human race, on the whole, is its own worst enemy. Still, there are times when acceptance of homosexuality and variations thereof are on the rise. The 1970s were one such time. Yet homophobia and persecution were still the disgusting order of the day. So because of ignorant, backward thinking, and intolerance, a disease that could kill any human was allowed to flourish and proliferate. Nothing is worse for human beings than a lot of overtly stupid, unempathetic human beings. So depending on how you look at it, the AIDS virus hit the world at exactly the wrong time. I mean, if you're a big fan of sex and people not dying from disease, or maybe it was the right time. If you hate people enjoying sex and get off on people slowly dying in pain or, or hell, maybe you are possibly the AIDS virus incarnate. Freddie, during the time uh, AIDS was starting to quietly make its way into and through the gay community, was living the life of a quiet artist. When not recording or touring, you could find him in his garden, sipping tea with a crocheted blanket across his lap, talking with his cats, of which he had many, and he would talk to them about fairy kings and leprechauns. He'd also tend to his stable of unicorns, which he'd used to make brief sojourns to a distant galaxy to rap battle the Omega Vcom people of Relnor 7. No. Freddy was blazing through ass and blow like a man trying to find a pot of gold at the bottom of a pile of ass and blow. He didn't know about AIDS, and AIDS didn't know about him. Freddy motherfucking fucked a lot and was fucked up while he was doing the fucking of which he was doing a lot of. As a matter of fact... When you think of rock and roll excess, I want you to picture Freddie Mercury naked, drunk off his ass with cocaine encrusted around his nostrils, wearing a cowboy hat in a room full of naked people wearing women's hats. All while he sits on a golden horse like a cocaine cowboy, choosing which person he's going to fuck, screaming, I'm cocaine Jesus, motherfuckers, and my dick pumps out miracles. Every one of you is getting one tonight. You're getting one. You're getting one. Maybe even in your face. Or possibly on your back. Meanwhile... Across the ocean in the USA, a pantless Edward G. knowingly looked to the sky and smiled. Dick swinging. Acting! Okay. You know that what I said was nonsense. But not... Actually, not all of it was an exaggeration. Really. The book mentions it. And I found it in an article from a publication called The People. In which it was printed in london england in may of 1996 and it said he would string all of them along near dawn then pick out a few select to party at his munich apartment where he indulged of his favorite games the young men were asked to strip naked and parade before him in nothing but a selection of women's hats freddie liked a big he had a weakness for beefcake muscular guys who looked like truck drivers with big hands and thick black mustaches. He would select his bedmate and abruptly dismiss the others. It was the same night after night. His sex drive was unquenchable. He once admitted, I'll go to bed with anything. And he boasted that he had bedded hundreds of lovers recklessly indifferent to the fact that it was a different man every night. And you thought I was fucking kidding I mean, no horse But he was riding (laughs) His hardcore lifestyle was so extreme It actually strained his relationship With his bandmates Who felt that being in his position He was inadvertently advertising His drug-fueled lifestyle as something to be Emulated Specifically uh, They believe the song Don't stop me now Went too far in promoting his dope laced porno life as something that all the kids should try, and here you thought that that song was just a great addition to your workout playlist. I mean, why not, right? It hypes the fuck out of you. I mean, kind of makes you feel that, like you know, jumping through a plate glass window might be plausible. I mean, right? Like you know, maybe, maybe you know, maybe not that, you know. But I mean, it, it amps you. It, it does amp you up. Still, can you blame the band? I mean, their livelihoods depended on kids buying albums, going to their concerts, and buying that sweet Queen swag. However, nothing keeps parents' dollars firmly in their pockets, like sons and daughters saying, Mom, Dad, tell Santa I'd like the newest Queen album, and a little of that tasty Colombian snow. If it's good enough for Freddy and his traveling fuck fest, it's good enough for me. Lyrically, it is a pretty explicit double entendre-laden advertisement for Snow White and the Seven Bumps. If you need a soundtrack for a rehab montage, this song should be on it. Why? Because there's some irony-corded comedy gold in its cocaine-covered mountain peaks. Imagine, don't stop me now. I don't know why I keep doing that, but okay. But imagine that's being played over a scene of an intervention. Then cutting the, you know, cutting to tearful goodbye hugs outside the rehab center and then fade to nights, days of convulsing and throwing up. I mean, come on. This shit practically writes itself on a personal note. I didn't realize it was about cocaine, and I'd been hearing this song my entire life. Though, the eight-year-old version of myself just associated the highly motivating song with unbridled energy and probably too much uh, syrup on Freddy's pancakes, and not, you know, a Schedule two narcotic that carries a Class A felony. Punishable by 10 years to life in prison to be followed by five years of supervised release and up to $10 million in fines. Feel like an idiot. Now, nine-year-old me, fully versed on drug law and mandatory minimum sentencing. Plus, I was doing a lot of cocaine then. You know, getting it in while watching uh, DuckTales that year. (laughs) I'm kidding. Oh, man. High school, though. Uh, Regardless. The lyrics make it pretty obvious as to what Freddie is referring to. Just for context, here are some of the short term psychological effects of cocaine according to drugabuse.gov. The effects include constricted blood vessels, dilated pupils, and increased body temperature, heart rate, and blood pressure. Large amounts of cocaine may intensify the user's high, but can also lead to bizarre, erratic, and violent behavior. No shit. Some cocaine users report feelings of restlessness, irritability, anxiety, panic, and paranoia. Users may also experience tremors, vertigo, and muscle twitches. Now, let's see if any of that kind of stuff made it into the lyrics. Uh, here we go. I'm burning through the sky, yeah, 200 degrees. That's why they call me Mr. Fahrenheit. Traveling at the speed of light. Does that sound like a temperature spike, cold sweats? Maybe thinking you can buy a Ferrari right now if you can figure out how to take this fucking shirt off. Other lyrics include, Yeah, I'm a rocket ship on my way to Mars on a collision course. I'm a satellite out of control. I'm a sex machine ready to reload like an atom bomb about to oh, 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 explode. Does it sound like someone... Railing lines with an increased heart rate, twitchy, twitchy, thinking they could totally make it as an MMA fighter. All they need is a ring and someone's arms to snap. Just make sure the camera's rolling, baby. It's my fucking audition tape. Yeah. All right. All right. I'll, I'll settle down. The rest of the song is just, uh, it's just good, wholesome messaging. On the health benefits of cocaine and how it can greatly improve your life, uh, concentration, or, and demeanor overall. The addictive qualities and slanderous claims labeled at the drug and its users and sellers are largely exaggerated and wholly unfounded. The following message was brought to you by the Better Cocaine Bureau, which would like to remind you that nothing puts a pep in your step like Columbia's purest driven snow. Cocaine. That's why I'm going to hell, folks. Cocaine is bad for you. Very bad. Don't do it. Just, uh, get more sleep and exercise. If you need more energy, energy, just get more sleep and exercise. If you need more energy, damn it. All natural, you know, fruits, veggies, not the product that is, uh, packaged by naked people because their employers are afraid they'll steal it or the copious amounts of money, um, that those people get from selling it. That was actually a really obscure New Jack City reference. Um, and I actually think that was crack they were working with in that movie. Uh, anyway, back to Freddy. Yes, Mr. Mercury liked his cocaine. But thankfully, he wasn't an addict. He would use it recreationally. But, you know, never as a full-time hobby. Um, very easy. He very easily weaned himself off it before, you know... Uh, he got that cocaine addiction urge, you know, and maybe he had to suck dick for it. No banging dealers for free kilos. No siree. Freddie was in control, which is a rare thing among drug users of such high capacity. Usually there's a tipping point, but Freddie never let it uh, get that far. So bravo, and not so uh, bravo, Freddie. His lifestyle, though, it didn't end with a few cocaine binges. Uh, however, no. Uh, the man lived life like it was a rented dick. Mule. Like it was a rented mule dick. No, mule dick. Mule. He, he whooped its ass and made it work for him. Is uh, Like a mule. Uh, that's what I meant. And by that, I mean he spent a shit ton of money and blew it on parties, paintings, cars, and all kinds of shit. He spent hundreds of thousands of pounds slash dollars slash and a, an insanely obscene amount of money. No matter what currency you call it. He flushed it into a shitter of luxuriously boozy, dope, binge-filled days of shopping. God bless him. Look, no further for evidence of this than the Party to End All Parties, which he orchestrated for the release of their album titled Jazz in 1978, an album that was completely devoid of actual jazz. I don't get it either. But yeah, jazz. Let's just jump around a bit and talk about it. The Party of Parties, to showcase the release of the album, was thrown at the Fairmont Hotel in Louisiana on Halloween in 1978. According to Freddie, we just wanted to have a bit of fun. The title suggests one or two promotional possibilities. New Orleans was the obvious place to launch it. The title, he referred to being jazz, of course, like I mentioned before. Mercury, in keeping with his mantra, excess all areas ordered that no expense be spared he flew in 80 reporters from around the world movie stars fellow musicians rock stars and the like freddie mercury overwhelmed 400 guests with shit like voluptuous strippers who smoke cigarettes with their vaginas a dozen blackface minstrels dwarfs snake charmers drag queens Several busty blondes who stunned party revelers by peeling off their flimsy costumes to reveal that they were, in fact, well-endowed men. For the people hungry for food, instead of, uh, you know, the assorted pills and booze people were chomping down, guests could enjoy oysters, lobster, stuffed crab, and caviar. Reportedly, there was a dwarf on a table under a heap of cold cuts, but it's unclear if the meat was, uh, you know, for eating or for show or, uh... I mean, what? And a naked woman in a bathtub full of uncooked liver. What the fuck for? I mean, so am I supposed to dance or what? Dance? Uh, we have enough people doing that right now, okay? <laughs> what we need from you is to get in the tub of liver. Why Why would I get into... Because all of the time and space hinges on you. You... you Look, it's it's not for you to question, all right? Get in the fucking tub. Get in the fucking liver tub. The entire party's existence depends on, on you getting in the motherfucking liver tub <laughs> where everyone dies, all right, due to the unbalancing of the universe and destroying us all. Don't you look at me like that. I'm not on drugs. You're on drugs. Being that it was Halloween, the ballroom was outfitted with 50 dead trees rented, especially for the occasion which made it look like a skeletal forest. Queen's PR representative, Bob Gibson, said the goal was to, quote, create an environment where whatever you wanted to do was sanctioned. To really drive the point home about that, music execs would enter a back room where they would receive sexual favors. Quote, Most hotels offer their guests room service. Mercury told one publication... This one offers them lip service, end quote. Hmm. Holy shit. I feel like uh, any party I've been to ever uh, could have doubled as a book club meeting, you know, held during uh, a paint drying staring competition, uh, where the winner gets uh, gets to watch a pot of water come to a boil before killing themselves. A Dixieland band played jazz music until the band arrived around midnight. One guest recalled One guest recalled additional details remembering the appearance of a cross-dressing band. The dance floor was so packed, um they didn't know uh who was in there. And they had these huge videos of 50 people naked on bicycles to debut the single Fat Bottom Girls off the new album. It was a it was a really weird scene. Um Weird. Very, very weird. Uh, For instance, an interesting tidbit uh, was recently uncovered by the authors during their intensive research on the event. Apparently David Bowie, Mick Jagger, Elton John, and the entire Charlie Daniels band, half of the Bee Gees, and the the Queen of England, were all in attendance. Yeah. Apparently a subset of the larger group, uh, larger party, I should say, broke off and was later found in a smaller room adjacent to the main event. What they did, or why they were in that room, was later deemed an orgy. The details of what actually happened in the room uh, was one of the crown's most closely guarded secrets until recently. Records show that when asked of her involvement in what happened in that room, Queen Elizabeth plainly stated, So I took some cock. Big whoops. I gave more than I got. The recently unsealed documents record Freddie Mercury, under oath, commenting on the matter, saying, She's not lying, darling. Everyone applauded her at the end of the night. Bless her heart. She's amazing and very flexible for her age. Though only a rumor until very recently an unnamed source leaked documents through the website WikiLeaks, the, uh, the legitimacy of the information is heavily disputed. You know, despite description of what occurred, uh, apparently being corroborated by several witnesses, many in the intelligence community uh, are rumored to believe uh, that the incident uh, is legitimate. So, uh, I mean, there you go, interesting stuff. Uh wow! I, I never, I never uh, knew about that until I read the book, and, and then, and then I, and then made it up afterward. The queen orgy, that is. The rest is true. The biggest actual rumor following the party and one the book mentions and I teased at the beginning of uh, part one of this episode thing was the the legion of dwarves with trays of trays full of cocaine strapped to their heads. They made their way around the party. The book claims the dwarves were hermaphrodites because of of course, of course, if Freddie is going to be linked with this fucking shindig wrangling a squad of regular run of the mill dwarves. Just wouldn't be enough. Are you kidding me? Ye- you mean dwarves? Just they're just going to be regular dwarves, just regular old balls in cock vagina toting dwarves. No, 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 that won't do. No, no, sir. No. What, what we need is some goddamn edge. Um. Let me let me think. Uh, oh. Uh, how about dwarves named after Renaissance artists? No, what are you fucking kidding me? No, but look, uh, it's gotta—it's gotta be something really special. Dwarves aren't special. Uh, are you saying dwarves named after Renaissance artists aren't? Uh... Gosh, stop speaking. This is a Freddie Mercury affair. Um, regular dwarves, p- peculiar names—that's for lesser, common fare. No, sir. This event requires. Uh, uh dwarves with with doctorates but only uh but only doctorates in the environmental sciences uh, oh oh genetically related dwarves that are doctors oh, oh oh dwarves who are also doctors in the environmental sciences who are also related who are also fans of Tim and Zach Adams what the Fuck, are you talking about? Uh, yeah, no, Uh, oh, hermaphroditic dwarves. Yes, hermaphroditic dwarves. Fucking nailed it. Round them up. While the many reporters and accounts never brought up dwarves of any sort, it's uh, never been officially denied either, so... Given the insanity of the thing, I'm guessing there were dwarves with Coke Mountains on their heads. Just saying, when insanity rules the day, you probably can't rule out more insanity. It's just, it's probably just not wise. Funnily enough, at one point, the band, uh, just, the queen, just, just up and left the party. And it just kept going. Like, just, left. They just, they just ghost-rided the whip if that were such a thing with still doing with cars, but they did it to their own party. They just fucking left. I can't imagine. I can't imagine it was out of boredom. But if you, I mean, if you put some shit like that together, I mean, well, I mean, hell maybe they, maybe they were bored regardless. At some point they just cut out and the party kept rolling. And someone asked when they should shut it all down. And, uh, they were told they were, Seriously, told the band wanted naked disco dancers to keep going until dawn. Can you imagine? Like, hey guys, look, me and the staff, we we enjoy a good party. I mean, that's, uh, but this, I mean, this. Are you guys? I mean, you guys are great, but this, I mean, uh, we have lives, you know. Are you guys? You guys are splitting. You're taking off. Seriously, uh, when should we wind this thing down? It, ''What the fuck are you saying to me? We spent a quarter of a million pounds on this shit. Look, fucker, nothing gets shut down. You hear me? I know. We, the band, we want the naked disco dancers working their sweet asses until dawn, sun, rise. Ain't no new day starting?'' Without the sweet, stanky ass sweat of some tired ass disco dancers. Do you understand me? Now go get back to work. Those trays of blow aren't going to fill themselves. Creek, 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 cocaine. While the book mentions a few details of the event, I thought I'd dig a little deeper, you know, and find more. There are pictures, too, but nothing crazy. I mean, they kept the pictures kind of tame. They couldn't have, uh, you know, smoking vaginas in newspapers. Um, I, I got a lot of it from InterviewMagazine.com and Ranker, uh, if you want to go home for yourself for more. Anyway, since, uh, you know, we've already strayed off the linear aspect of Freddie's life, why not trip into some interesting side story stories? Like Freddie and Queen's insecurity about the public's changing musical tastes. They began their rock and roll story while the music was in the throes of glam rock. If you don't know what that is, uh, look up David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust period and the band Sweet and uh, Mark Bolin uh, and his band called T-Rex. Basically, it was rock bands using makeup, androgyny and the wearing of womanly clothing as a form of rebellion against social norms at the time, while toying with the idea of gender roles, conformity to social constructions. Conformity to social constructs and whatnot. Queen started right as that particular movement did. So Queen was kind of freaked out about the advent of punk rock because punk rock wasn't that. It was, it was like a reaction to that. So like any, you know, rock band that garnered any kind of notoriety, there was a real fear of uh, becoming irrelevant overall, not just because of punk. Just so happened punk was, I don't know, like, uh, music community, or the uh, music, it's uh, throwing itself in reverse away from gl- glam. So they kind of panicked. Um, you get what I'm saying. What's funny about Queen being worried about punk, though, was that they kind of uh inadvertently introduced uh, one of its biggest bands to the world. As part of their promotional schedule for the album, A Day at the Races, Queen had been booked to appear on the ITV show Today with Bill Grundy in December of 1976. Unfortunately, they were unable to fulfill their obligation because Freddie Mercury had a toothache. He was in some pretty intense fucking pain. So, he went to the dentist instead of doing the show to promote the album. You know, And with Queen pulling out, it left an opening for another band to fill the slot hole. Slot. Slot. To fill the slot. So, as David Bowie had inadvertently introduced Queen to the world, so did Queen introduce... The Sex Pistols, as they were called upon to fill the slot vacated by Queen. And boy, did they fill it. I mean, me uh, t- tossing off a slew of fucks and shits on primetime TV before it was, you know, for primetime was a semi-moderately accepted slew of curse words today. Speaking of which, when are we uh, going to get over saying bad words on TV? They're just mouth sounds, people. Regardless, in the 70s, nothing got you publicity like cracking off some fucking wordy dirds like Wanker and Sod in England. Uh, you know, for all, for all the workaday adults at home sipping tea. Personally, I wish I could know how many of them flew into a rage, maybe spitting TV, maybe spitting tea on their TV sets. You know, because they were uh, old, boxy, uh, you know, spit on them. And then maybe cause some sparks, you know, the sparks, you know, uh, ignite some shit, maybe a house fire or two. And then, uh, you know, maybe they took out a whole neighborhood, burnt, burning it down. Maybe, maybe later uh, somebody asks, how'd your granddad go? Uh, burned to death because of the fucking sex pistols. Okay. That was a little dark. I'm sorry. I'd settle for how many people punched an object or person in shock or outrage. You know, maybe kicked a cat. I'm easy. You can find the infamous Sex Pistols interview clip on YouTube. There's a nifty little documentary on it, too. Um, I'll post a link on it. I'll post a link to it somewhere. Maybe Twitter. Probably Twitter. Yeah, I'll try pinning it to the top of there, you know, so you don't have to scroll because fuck scrolling. That wouldn't be the only time by the way, that uh, Queen had a run-in with the Sex Pistols. Uh, no, while they were recording uh, News of the World, the Sex Pistols were down the hall recording their album. So, of course, they they met face to face. It appears the bands got on unreasonably well. They, Freddie encountered Sid Vicious and ended up calling him Mr. Ferocious. This was after Sid burst into Queen's studio and asked Freddie if uh, he'd been successful in bringing ballet to the masses. Dear, replied Freddie, we're doing our best. Freddy was fucking awesome. I think one of the best things about reading a, a biography of someone who was in the top of the pop culture, you know, I don't know, zeitgeist or whatever, are the interactions they had with other people who were in it. I mean, it's just, it's strangely compelling to me. Like, like you, you expect these people to live in a universe all their own, but of course they didn't. We're, we're all on Earth together. And we're all here, so, you know, they just happen to be human beings with an incredibly public job in entertainment. Still, the stories are fun. Like, okay, take, for instance, the making of Under Pressure, where Queen and David Bowie teamed up unexpectedly. The the song Under Pressure was a pure accident. Or not accident, maybe just chance. Freddie said, Bowie came in to see us one day in the recording studios we owned at the time in Montreux, where we were working. Uh, We began to dabble on something together, and it happened very spontaneously and very quickly indeed. Brian May contributed a heavy riff in D, which uh, which had been lurking in his head. David brought up an unusual idea for creating the vocal for the track uh, for the recording. I mean, he was kind of famous for writing lyrics by writing down words and just putting them together, you know, kind of randomly making up lyrics like that. He suggested that they do a corresponding thing regarding the writing of the melody of the song. I probably fudged a few words on that quote, but I mean, just just so you know, it's not an exact quote. You get the idea, though. Um When the backing track was done. Bowie said, okay, let's each of us go into the vocal booth and sing how we think the melody should go. Just, you know, off the top of our heads. And then we'll compile a vocal out of that. So that's what they did. Some of the original bits even made it onto the actual song or the record. Uh, Freddie doing all the vocal noodling that, that's that part, you know, the, ah, blah, 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 blah. He, uh, he's a fucking Freddie Mercury. The song uh, was written from the ground up on the night I visited their studio, David Bowie said, and uh, he revealed on his website in 2004. When you hear David Bowie singing his lines, those were lyrics written by him. And when you hear Freddie singing his words, those were written by uh, God. No, they were written by Freddie. Uh, Bowie said, I cannot believe that, that that whole thing was written and recorded in one evening flat. Quite a feat for what is actually a fairly complicated song. That wasn't, uh, wasn't that simple, though. Wasn't the end of it. There was an 18-hour mixing session where Bowie and Mercury argued and nitpicked over how it would be mixed. It gets so bad that it almost blocks the release of Under Pressure as a single altogether. Looking back, Brian May thought, it's a great song, but it should have been mixed differently. David and Freddie had fierce battles over it, in fact. Yet, despite the precociousness and the battles between the talents working on Under Pressure, David Bowie was a consummate collaborator. Now, again, let's jump over and see how AIDS is doing. Good old terrible murderous AIDS. Well... AIDS had finally been found out. People were quietly growing more and more sick and terrified. You know, ignorance was becoming amplified and the LGBTQ community found the whole world uh, was turning a lot colder to their plight. It was around this time, during the height of AIDS being identified, that Freddie contracted it. It was uh, sometime during the mid-80s that he picked it up. And and as we all know, it would be what put him down. God damn it. He was such a good guy. So, okay. So here's my dilemma. I think we should wrap up this episode with a nice bit of highlighting. Because the end, the real end is, is just too much. The book goes into how AIDS worked its way across the world, infiltrating the gay community and did ungodly damage to everyone. It goes into detail about Freddy's, how Freddy spent his last days. And overall, I think it's important to understand the full scope of any man's struggle, especially one so tragic. But it doesn't mean every recounting should end in tears or something, right? So, if you want to gain a fuller understanding of Freddy, uh, the virus that took his life, and why his end was just so damn unfair, uh, you should get this book. It's really good. It had a lot of information in it. Really, really good info. It's a... It the writing is a little iffy at times. And like I said, there are some things where you're like, why, why are they pushing me to a certain way? Anyway, overall though. Good. I I feel it was, it was really good. Even, I mean, even with making this two part episode, I didn't even dent the wealth of info that's in it. There's a lot. It's really good. Get the book. It's it's worth it. Now, now Freddie lived life at a thousand miles an hour. So why not talk about some of the miles he covered instead, right? Freddie uh, is deserving of high points. And he had many. You know, he's the rock god that uh, he is and was. So let's talk uh, about Live Aid at Wembley. Now, the performance uh, portion of Queen at Live Aid was recreated to great effect in the Freddie Mercury biopic Bohemian Rhapsody. Plus, there's clips of the performance itself on YouTube. It's phenomenal. It's been described as 20 minutes that changed music. It has been voted the greatest live rock performance ever a few times over. If you haven't seen it, you need to. You definitely need to. What I found interesting about uh, its mention in the book was the prelude leading up to it. Bob Geldof of the Boomtown Rats fame uh, recalled, I just had to find Freddy's G-spot. Meaning he had to find a way to ask him without him you know, saying no. That's what he was afraid of, being turned down. Um, When he did eventually speak directly to him, uh, he literally said to him, Fred, why wouldn't you do it? The entire stage was built for you, practically. Darling, the world. Freddy laughed and said, Oh, you have a point, Mr. Geldof. Artists lined up for what was hyped as the biggest concert on earth. Each of them would be given a maximum of 20 minutes of stage time. With that in mind... Uh, Queen made four crucial decisions that would turn them into absolute legends more than they were already legends. More, you know, heaping it on. First, they suggested they shouldn't open or close the show. They wanted to land right in the middle-ish, kind of. The whole concert would be 16 hours long, which began at noon at Wembley Stadium in London. They asked for their slot to be around 6 p.m. and 7, which was... Prime time, baby. More eyes on Queen, motherfuckers. Second, Queen stuck to their fucking hits. All killer, no filler. While the other acts thought they'd do a little advertising for their latest album, playing their latest single that was on the radio at the time, uh, Queen opted for fucking timeless. Well, except for Hammerfall. That was kind of new. But still, Radio Gaga, We Are The Champions, motherfucking hits, baby. Third, They rehearsed their asses off. For three days in the run-up to Live Aid, everything had to be near perfect. Finally, last thing, they pulled an old-school trick. They had their friend uh, set the faders on the mixing of the the sound that was going out for broadcast. He inched theirs up a little louder than the rest of the acts. So the people at home would wake the fuck up and pay attention. Queen's playing, motherfuckers. Was it worth it? You goddamn right it was. Not only did they own that show, they single handedly ended all of World Hunger. Wait. Uh wait. No? Uh Hold on, let me check that doesn't seem right. Uh Huh. Turns out, uh Turns out the people are uh, still starving in, in Africa and all around the world. Well, that's a little anticlimactic. And unfortunate. I was I was certain that famous people singing would end <clears throat> I mean, at least I mean, at least you've got a good show out, out of it, out of it. Damn. You know I really thought concerts were viable food substitutes. I could have sworn I read that in a non-existent news article. Well, shit. This book had a lot of information in it. Like I said, it had, it can be a tad, uh, you know, like I said before, biased, I guess, is the word, but it was a wealth of information. It's really good. I can't say that enough. So, um, so much more in it. My God. <sighs> All right. Um. God, Freddie Mercury did so much shit. All right. So before I wrap this one up, Uh, I'll end with one of my favorite takeaways from Freddie Mercury's life story. It's a little sad, but also pretty fucking amazing. So you'll need the setup first. Here it is. Uh, After Freddie had told other members of Queen about his diagnosis, they rallied around him with a pocket full of shells. Sorry, my brain just went there. And sometimes it's just not worth stopping it. No, they rallied around their friend slash bandmate slash business partner and honored his request to keep his terminal prognosis a secret. As Freddie's life was winding down, he kept the reason for his unhealthy decline to himself and a few very close people. Uh, He did it for a lot of reasons. One being that he didn't want to jeopardize the careers of the many, many people that depended on queen to keep functioning. That's the common consensus, by the way, uh, Even though he never outright said why he didn't tell anyone beyond his circle of trusted folks that included members of Queen, but it just makes sense. In that spirit, he told Brian May, Roger Taylor, and John Deacon to write as much material as they could so he would sing and record it. It was a race against time, as they say, and he held up his end belting out songs to the point of exhaustion. Sometimes it would only last a couple of hours a day because he would get very tired. But during the couple of hours, boy, he would give a lot, May recalled. When he couldn't stand up, he'd prop himself up against the desk at the mic here, down a vodka, and do a blinding vocal. May remembered the late Bohemian Rhapsody singer insisting, I'll sing it till I fucking bleed. I remember doing the demo for The Show Must Go On with the guide vocal, some of it in falsetto, because I couldn't reach the top notes. And I said, Fred, I don't know if this is going to be possible to sing, he said. And he went, I'll fucking do it, darling. Vodka down. And went in and killed it, completely lacerating that vocal. He was in a very poor state physically by that time. Really hardly able to walk, but he could still bring that passion into the vocal. He'd have to go and recuperate for days to get enough energy to get back to the studio to record. And then he'd try and cram in as much as he could with the time he had left. In the end, he almost made it. Brian May explained in the 2011 BBC documentary about Queen titled Days of Our Lives, Freddie would say, give me words, I will sing. So there I was writing on scraps of paper these lines for mother love. I would give him a line, he would sing it, then sing it again, then sing it again. So we only had three takes of everything. After he had finished the second verse, he said, oh, I don't feel too well. I'm going to go home and we'll finish it tomorrow. And he never did. That was the last time I saw Freddie in the studio. After that, he grew too weak to stand. His voice slowed, the pain intensified, he never came back. Brian May finished the song's final verse, both writing and recording it. How utterly amazing, yet tragic. When he was young, he was hell-bent on being a rock star. He had a natural internal drive that he used to reach that goal, which he undoubtedly did. He had nothing left to prove at the end, nothing to gain. And, you know, the sand in his hourglass was almost empty. As he was fading away, he used the time that he had left, not for himself, but for the betterment of those he'd leave behind in their collective legacy. My takeaway was that when you're at the end, it's not about you, but what you did for those around you and what you will leave behind for them. Ultimately, death isn't about you, is it? It never really was. Freddie was kind, sweet, friendly, shy, campy, uh, Japanese art-loving guy who loved Lana Turner, the music Cabaret, And his favorite singer was an opera vocalist named Malserat Caballé. He achieved his dream and lived it to the absolute fullest. We can all hope to realize that much in our own lives and work to leave behind that kind of beauty when our time comes to a close. It's a shame. He, uh, he, he couldn't just stop fucking everyone. I mean, the guy fucked a lot. Damn it, Jimmy. You could have told Freddy to keep it in his fucking pants, Jimmy. So what if you were dead before the whole f- fucking dreams, Jimmy? He could have spoken to him in his dreams. He'd listen to you. He was your super fan, Jimmy. Damn it. Missed opportunity, Jimmy. Damn it, Jimmy. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Elton Reads Book a Week. If you did, uh, please give it a five-star rating on the podcast app of your choice, um, multiple, do it multiple times. That's even better. Um, it only takes a minute and it helps other people find this. Um, you know, so you, and fuck, you can tell them too, if you'd like that, that's great too. spread the word. Um, if you want to see these episodes come out even quicker, uh, better quality and stuff, uh, please consider contributing to the, uh, Patreon, and Anchor.fm page I mentioned earlier in the episode. Uh, the links are in the description. Again, you can contact me at EltonReadsBookAWeek at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and all that jazz. Um, usually I'm on Twitter a lot more than the other ones. Uh, Instagram is a close second. Um, I'm, I'm on that pretty close, to. I'm on that a lot, too. Not so much posting uh, because – there's only so many pictures of books I can take without making them all look the same, because you know they're fucking books. What am I going to start doing? Put putting on fucking costumes and shit? I don't know what to do with them. Throw them in the air? I I don't know. Um, set them on? I won't. No, I'm not going to set them on fire. I draw the line there. Not doing that because you. Know. <sighs> but you should read a book this week. You should uh, you should start a book this week. Get get one out of the library. Buy one, uh, but start one. Continue one, finish one Don't let them die out Thank you Bye